0: Got one, thank you. Good evening. How's everybody? Good? We're fine, fine, thank you. Good. Yourself? I'm all right. Good. Okay, we have a very difficult task ahead of us this evening, because they've got me speaking about not only the love of God, but the fear of God in an hour. So... I mean, these are monumental things. So uh, I hope, please please God, that um, we'll be able to do this appropriately. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best. I have a tendency to speak a great deal about the love of God, and I'm worried that tonight I'm going to spend too much time on that. Not that you could spend too much time on that. There's no real capacity to spend too much time on that. Um, but I want to be able to talk about the fear as well. and uh, They're not independent of themselves. Well, you'll hear me more when they open the... More. But before we talk about the love and fear of God, it really, we really cannot do that appropriately at all until we understand who God is. So I'm only going to be able to do a very, very minor treatment of that tonight, but I'm going to try and just present it in a way that we can at least have a working definition so that we can talk about everything else that we need to talk about tonight. But if we don't know who God is, then none of it matters, because if we can't know who God is or we don't know who God is, when we say God, what do we mean? The love of that entity and the fear of that entity falls short because we have no idea who the object of our affection is or who the object of our reverence and fear is. So th- that's what we're going to do first. We have to be able to understand who it is that we're talking about. And and we'll work on from there. So everybody has source sheets? Okay, very important tonight. As always, but tonight. Right, so share, if you can. Um, So we'll start with the opening of the Rambam's Mishneh Torah. He starts everything, he opens his entire book with a description uh, of what we mean when we say God. Now, I've mentioned before that he doesn't say God when he opens it up. He's very concerned. He's careful not to say God when he opens it up. And uh, I believe very much that the reason for doing this is because he knows that when he says God, you'll already have something in your mind that you think is God, when he says that. So he doesn't. What he does <coughs> is he says, I want to talk to you about what he calls Matsui Rishon. Matsui Rishon is primal existence. That which existed before all things. The very first being. Uh, and so what he says is, Yesode Yesodot ve'amud the foundation of all foundations, the pillar of all wisdom is to know that there is primal existence. Notice he doesn't say to believe that there is primal existence. He says you have to know that there's primal existence. And the way that one knows that there is primal existence is to know existence. And the way that one knows existence is to know your own existence. If you know that you exist, then you know that there has to be primal existence, meaning you know that there has to be a precursor to your existence. Now, if you go all the way back, you're going to be something that was first. If you doubt your existence, then the whole question is out the window, right? because an existential reality in and of itself is questionable to whatever it is that is you or not you, if you don't know whether you are or not. Right? So, And there are people that doubt their existence, but we're not talking about that here. We're assuming tonight our 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 axiom is that you accept for a reality that you exist. And if you accept for reality that you exist, you, exist, you re- accept existence itself as a reality simply by knowing your own existence. And therefore you will know that there was primal existence, that there had to be a precursor to you if you go all the way back. All right, okay, so let's pause for a minute. We're doing this fairly quickly, all right? Let's pause for a minute and recognize what that being must be, at least in our capacity to understand it. The first thing that we'll understand is that we can't understand it, and we'll understand why it is that we can't understand it. The reason we can't understand it is because that being that was first, that is first, that is primal to all things, really has absolutely nothing in common with us. Why is that? Well, if it's first, it means that it came from nowhere. As a matter of fact, it didn't come to anywhere at all. Because if it came from somewhere, then the where that it came from would be prior to it, right? And then that would be first. And then that's what we would mean when we say primal existence. It's the definition of first. It's what first is. Already you can feel your brain hurting a touch... You can feel a little bit of discomfort in the brain because it's bringing you already to the edges of your capacity as a human being to be able to ascertain reality. Good. This is where you want to be when you're thinking about God. You're at the edges already of your capacity for human thought. And that is where one should be when they are beginning to even think about God and you will come to realize you can't really. And so all we will ever have when we talk about God is borrowed terms. We will borrow whatever it is that we can to use in our language what we want to refer to when we refer to that which was before all things, which for all intents and purposes cannot be spoken about. Because it can't be defined. Because defining it would mean it had limits, right? I mean, is that what definition is? Lines? Yes? High definition on your television? or your screen, whatever, is that the lines are clearer, sharper. Yeah, if you're talking about muscular definition, right? You're talking about lines, right? Clear definitions of muscle, which where they are, right? Definitions of words, what it is and what it isn't. Clearly defining what it is and what it isn't. So you can't talk about limits with primal existence. It would have to be infinite, even infinite is a borrowed term. Because there are greater and smaller infinities, aren't there? Consider, and I'm no mathematician, right? But consider if you have a set of odd numbers, odd integers. It goes on for how long? Infinitely, right? What if I add even numbers into that set? Is it a larger set? It's not? Really? Really, there's not more numbers in there? Really? Really? Interesting. Check it out. Look it up. Look it up. There are greater and smaller infinities. I'm only borrowing the term because when we say infinity, right, we mean it is unending. There is no end. There's no beginning. There's no end. Right? And there can't be because if there were limits, then it would be in something, wouldn't it? I mean, it would inhabit something, even on some virtual scale. And what would that place be? Primal to it? Could you have two firsts? No. So it would have to be one. It would be infinite. We don't have the words to talk about it, really. But there is one thing that we do know, and we can say about it, and that is this. It is existence. It's not something that exists, in the sense that we mean it usually. Right? When we say something exists, we say, okay, it is in existence. And it is always, what we call in English, contingent. It's always contingent. Contingent means it always relies on something or many things in order for it to be. Like us. We rely on many things in order for us to be. Things that we don't even realize that we rely on. I mean, forget about food and air, right? You rely on your atoms functioning appropriately and not disintegrating. Yeah, As this podium does, right? This lectern also relies on its existence for its atomic structures to be intact. It's all contingent. Everything is contingent except for the first being. The first being is not contingent because if we're contingent, whatever was contingent on would be the first being. And that's what I would be talking about when I said primal existence. So primal existence by definition is not contingent. It's what we call necessary. It is what being is. If we could say such a thing. If we could talk about the power of existence itself, the very source of all being, what being is, Not what is expressed through being. That's what we mean when we talk about primal existence. That's what primal existence is. The Rambam then says, by the way, six paragraphs in, by the way, five, five paragraphs in, he says, oh, by the way, this being that we're talking about, that's God. Are you with me? Good you think you are, but good all right, so let 's have a look at number two on the pages. no questions now let 's take a look at number two on the just let the th- the ideas come out, okay Bear with me. Number two, <clears throat> if we're talking about the very source of existence itself, what we would call existence itself, the power of existence, then of course that means that we are talking about what we 're talking about is. The ultimate truth. Because what is truth? If not something that is real. Or something that exists. As opposed to something that is not real or does not exist. That's what truth is. So if I'm talking about the ultimate existence, I'm talking about the ultimate truth. And therefore the Rambam says, this is as the prophet says, Right? he quotes Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, and he says, Adonai Elohim emet. God the yud yud that you see over there in the Hebrew is shorthand for yud kavavke right the full name of God that we don't even speak which expresses existence expresses being itself because if you know Hebrew the word to be lihiyot, haya was hove is yihyeh will be if you can see those words i mean if if you were able to to recognize Hebrew lettering We've got yud and He and vav in there all over the place, right? It's all built from those those roots. The name yud kevavke is expressive of existence itself. That's what the name expresses. And so, <coughs> when we talk about that vadonai, vadonai here is 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 yud kevavke. That primal existence, Elohim, which is our Lord, because you don't get higher than that. Emet is truth. It's the ultimate truth. And any truth that is, only is because somehow it is related back to that ultimate truth. In other words, somehow that ultimate truth provides for the other truth, the sub-truth, the expressed truths, being. Even ideas that are real, nonetheless, exist only because the source of existence allows for them to be, for lack of a better term. Provides for their being. So that's what we mean when we say God. Now what we have to talk about is what does it mean to love this being? What does it mean to fear this being? So obviously, the first thing that we have to recognize is that when we talk about love and fear, we're talking about human emotions and actions, correct? So God's borrowing terms here. Because the concept of love and fear of God is a commandment. It's one of, two of, the 613 commandments of the Torah. There is a commandment to love, and there is a commandment to fear. Which in and of itself is an issue, because how do you command love if you don't? I mean, there's only one thing you can say. I mean, you command doing what's necessary in order to be able to achieve that experience of love, right? To experience love, act in love, do love, right? That's what we're talking about. And the same with fear. So if there is a commandment in the Torah that is basically there and saying to me, this is something that is incumbent upon you to work on in your life to achieve, yeah, I need to wear tefillin, I've got to find them. I've got to go through the motions that are necessary in order for me to be able to get tefillin for myself in the best of my ability. I do the best that I can in order to be able to acquire tefillin. If I have to love, then I do the best that I can in order to be able to achieve love. So the first thing that we're going to look at is recognize that when God commands this, God is obviously commanding us something that is human. The whole Torah, as a matter of fact, is speaking to us only in human terms. So we have to think about that, right? As the Ha'chamim say, Dibra Torah kilshon b'nei Adam. The Torah speaks in human language. What other language could it speak? If it was talking to us, we wouldn't understand anything else. So obviously what's happening is it's taking whatever concepts that are coming from God and clothing them in hu- in human terms so that we can relate which in and of itself means that if God is speaking to us through Torah which is another axiom right in orthodox Judaism that's what we believe that the Torah is speaking to us God is speaking to us through Torah that would mean then that the purpose of Torah is to provide for me some mode of access interaction connection with the source. Which otherwise, there is no real capacity to have, because as we said at the very beginning, there really is nothing that we share in common with that ultimate source. Whatever it is, we aren't. And vice versa. So, that's very important. I'm going to pause here for a minute, because we have to understand what the implications of that are. The implications of that are, that if I have in my humanity no direct ability to connect to that primal being, what we call God, because I have absolutely nothing in common with that being, then I'm stuck. Why am I stuck? I'm stuck without capacity for intentional connection. Why am I stuck without capacity for intentional connection? If I have nothing in common with that entity. I'm stuck because whatever it is that I perceive, conceive of that will allow me some conduit to connect with that God is always human, isn't it? Whatever it is that I think will be human thought produced by a human mind thought only by a human being. And therefore, it will always be what a human sees in human terms. It cannot be what it is that God is. And therefore, whatever it is that I think of will only be human ideas to connect to something that is absolutely not human. Do you see the problem with that? Do you recognize the problem with that? Mm-hmm. Let me bring this to you in personal terms. It's hard enough for us to relate to human beings that are not me. Me. I mean, I don't mean everybody knows not relate to me. I mean, whatever it is. I mean, me as a personal individual, right? It is difficult enough for you, for me, for everyone, to relate to anyone who isn't me. As a matter of fact, it's hard enough for me to relate to me. I don't even understand myself. Neither do you. Why is that difficult? It's difficult very simply because I don't understand my own mind. Because 90% of my mind is unconscious. So the little smidgen of 10%, which is very generous, right? The smidgen 10% that is conscious and that I'm aware of, that I allow myself to be aware of, forget about the crazy dreams that I have at night that come up and who knows who's doing that stuff. It's not really not me, right? I don't know it. I don't have relationship to it. I really don't have any access to it. And so how am I supposed to be able to relate to that? Okay, so how about other people? Uh, So conscious mind relates to conscious mind, yeah? I have no. I have to... The only way that I have any idea... This is very important. Very important. The only way that I have any idea as to how it is that you might feel, think, experience a world is through my experiences and thoughts. I don't know what you're thinking or feeling or how your experience of a world is. I have absolutely no access to that. You're a closed system. Everybody is. All I can do is rely on the fact that I hope that my brain and my feelings and my experience, because you happen to be of the same species of me as me, somewhat growing up in some similar environment to me, that I can extrapolate my ideas and thoughts and so on onto you. So that's what we call empathy. We hope that empathy works, right? We hope that it is, it is functional, which is why it's so important to have self-love and self-care. Because if I don't care and love myself, care for and love myself, I'm certainly not going to care and love for you. I have no idea what it is. I have no idea what care and love is because I don't allow for myself to experience it. So how am I supposed to know what it is for you? Now, that's hard enough, right? We struggle our whole lives to try and build strong, cohesive, empathic, meaningful relationships with other human beings. Now try and do it with primal existence. Good luck. It's not possible. It is impossible. There is only one way that it could be possible. And that is for primal existence to help us out a bit. And say, here human biped animal that you are, right? I mean, I made you, so I know you pretty well. These are ways in your human existence that you can connect to me. You have no other way to do it. Here you are. So one of the things is, one minute, one of the things is love. What is it you guys call that? um, You know, where you feel very close, connected, uh, you you have this feeling of warmth, an attraction, what do you call it, Um, love, yes, that's what you should do, right, that's what you should do. And also you should be very concerned, right, concerned about, you know, stepping all over me and uh, I won't like that very much, I mean, I I don't take that very well. It's an issue in general to start stepping all over primal existence, so you um, you should fear, you should fear, that's what you call it, right, very good. So we'll put that down, okay, love... Your God, fear. What do you call it, God? Okay, God, good. Wonderful. Then that's what we should do. So the value of this, these mitzvot, all mitzvot, but these mitzvot specifically are, they're access points. That's the most basic understanding of a mitzvah. It is access points. They're access points that are provided to us from the source in order for us to be able to connect. Because we cannot figure out the connections on our own we just can't i mean serendipitously perhaps you know stumble onto something but just because we think that this is something that we will be able to do in order to be able to find favor in god's eyes or to be able to to make him happy or kind of, i mean that's assuming his mind which again just another person sitting next to you is hard enough right try try that with it doesn't work okay <clears throat> so therefore why am i saying all of this to you because that means if love is a human condition and Torah is saying to me, God, through Torah, is saying to me, love. What do I need to do in order to be able to do that? What do I need? Okay, what do I need to do? I'm going to ask everybody to hold questions. I I will wait, but I, these, you must bear with me. I have to get this stuff out. It's very possible that your questions will be answered as I go. Right? So please bear with me. It's not that I'm, a, I'm against questions, but I can't do it tonight, because we have much. What do you have to do? If you know Torah saying love, blank love God, love the convert, love your neighbor, lo- what, what do I need to do? I need to know what it is. I need to know when we say ohev, right? Which I translate as love. We all translate; everybody translates it as love, pretty much, right? Well, what is that? So that's what we have to figure out. What is that? Is it just an emotion? Is it a feeling? Does it involve action? Lovely. Good. We've got to know what it is. So the first thing that we have to kind of figure out is what allows for me to love another person? Because that's how human beings do it, right? I mean, I love a pet, you know. I love my car. You know, I mean, there's different levels of love, Yeah. Whether we would use that word for all of these things, perhaps the Torah does. The Torah uses ohiv. as a matter of fact, there's no word for "like" in Hebrew. You either love or you don't. There's no "like." That's why in, in, in Israel, on Facebook, there, it just says "Tase like." You can't you can't. There's no word, right? You have to like it. kuf like right there in in Hebrew there is either connection or not. there's no just this passive, cold, insensitive like there's no such thing you either love or you don't, yeah, so the question is how do I connect to something right so love ultimately is a recognition of connection and a desire for the good of an entity, the desire to connect to an entity, to embrace an entity, to be able to genuinely be together with an entity and recognize obviously the need for that entity to be held in honor and health and care and so on, and for me to be able to connect to it that way. So when I say love, I'm not just talking about an emotion. As a matter of fact, one could love without the feeling of love. It's possible. It is absolutely absolutely possible. It's nice that you don't agree with me, that's fine. But it is possible, in my opinion. And the reason I'm saying that is because one can do acts of love even if they don't particularly admire, like, or have affection for someone. In other words, there may very well be, you could imagine, right, there might be a member of your family that you love but don't like. You don't just you just don't feel, you know, this warm and fuzzy stuff, you know, when you think about them. But if they needed you, you would be on the next plane. It's weird how that happens, isn't it? So, love is not just an emotion. Of course, yes, we can feel intense Emotive love. And where my being yearns to help, to support, to uplift, to exalt, to celebrate this other person. But love always includes action. It's nice that you feel that way. But if you don't do that way, then it's nothing more than a feeling. But it's not what we would ultimately call real love. Because you have to do something in order to be able to to engage in love that way. Okay? So let's go through the stages. The first is, okay. if you're going to love somebody, you have to know that person. If you don't know the person, you can't really love the person. You can love an idea. You can love even fictional characters. Right? I mean, hasn't that ever happened to you? You, you read a novel, you're reading about a fictional character, you just love that fictional character. <coughs> adore that fictional character. I mean, you do adore them. And writers have written about authors have written about this because they end up, they end up, these characters end up manifesting a life of their own. I mean, authors have written about this. I was just reading Ian McKellen. He um, he writes that he would write out about these characters. First, he says that the characters come to him like from with from from out of a mist. They're all in his head, right? But they they come out of it. And he writes storylines for these characters and planned for them to do certain things and realizes along the story that this person would never do that. So they can't do that anymore. All right, okay, so there's obviously some very real entities, right, that are manifest in these fictional characters, real ideas, real expressions of humanity, whatever it is that are manifest in these characters. But there is this sense, right, that when I see something, I'm, I'm experiencing something that I know, the more I get to know. If I recognize the elements in that individual that cause me to want to connect, that shows me that there is a place for me in their life, that my life would be better, my experience of my own self would be better to interact with them. Yeah, I'm not talking about infatuation. It's not love. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about the recognition that my life is more whole, more developed because of my interaction with this person. And it isn't needy. In other words, I'm not needing that person for myself. I am engaged with that person because I am more myself when I engage with that person. There's a very big difference. It sounds subtle, but it's a very big difference. When I need that person, I'm not really thinking about the other person very much. What I'm doing is thinking about me. And what I need to have from that person, whether it works out for me, it doesn't work out for me, or I like it, or I don't like it, or whatever the case may be, that's not love. It's immature. It's childish love. It's not real love. What love is, is I recognize the person, and the only thing that matters to me is the greatest good of that person, because only when that person is that person can I be all that I am in my interactions with them. And I would never harm that if I genuinely love. We all have very big trouble with this. It's very hard for us to actually find whole, real, well-suited love because most of us are needy on one level or another. But real love isn't. Mature love is not. So the more that I get to know the person, the more I can love if my love is true. Because the more I recognize how the facets of this individual bring out in my being, in my soul, in myself, what I am. I see myself in that interaction, become more myself in what it is that they open to me from the very expression of their being. Because every person will present to you another facet of creation. With God, it's beyond. Because it's the source. So every person that you experience is only expression of God. That's what you see in the light in their eyes when you look in their eyes and you see light, if they have any. And there are people that don't, unfortunately. Because it just dim. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's just they dim it way, way, way down. They don't let God in. They don't let the spirit of life within. So if that's the case, then to know God is to love Him. I cannot... This is a key. Write this down if you're writing notes. Okay, I cannot love God if I don't know Him. And to the degree that I know Him, I can love Him. If I know Him a little, I can love Him a little. If I know Him a lot, I can love Him a lot. In direct ratio. If I think that I love a lot, but I know a little, you're not loving God. You're loving some other idea that you have in your head about God. But it isn't God. Let's take a look. Number four on the pages is the mitzvah in the Torah. We say this every single day, twice a day, in the Shema Yisrael. It's part of the Shema Yisrael. And you shall love God, your Lord. Not the Lord your God. God, Yud your Lord. Right? Who is your Lord? Okay, so there's the mitzvah. The Rambam, of course, talks about this because it's a mitzvah, and he counts the mitzvot, and so he treats the mitzvah in number 5. And he says, Ha'el ha mitzvah This great and glorious God, there is a command to love him. There's also a command to fear, which we'll get to, hopefully. But there's a command to love. And what Harambam does in number 6 is say How does one get to love? I mean, obviously, it's not assumed that you just open your eyes and uh, you, know, you, you, you experience this love. How does one love? So he gives you a guide, a basic, very simple guide. He says, to know him is to love him. How do I know God if he's unknowable? I have no direct knowledge. There's no way for me to have any direct knowledge. We've already established that. So the only thing that I have to know him is what? His expressions. I could look at what it is that he's done. In the same way that I can with any other human being. right? I've never met the Rambam in my entire life. But I know him very well. Chances are you can give me a piece written by the Rambam or claimed to have been written written by the Rambam. I can tell you if that's the Rambam or not the Rambam. I like to believe I could do that anyway. And it's not just because I've read the Mishneh Torah, or not just because I've read the Perusha Mishnah, or not just because I've read the Moren Ebuchim or the Sefer HaMitzvot. I've read his letters. It's a whole other side of the man that you see in the letters. A whole other side of the man. I know this man, and I love this man with all of my heart. I'm telling you, I think of this man when I pause to genuinely think of the Rambam. I can't hold back my tears from how much I love him. I've never shook his hand. I've never seen his face. The face that you think you know when you see pictures of the Rambam is not the Rambam. They just made it up. right? We have no idea what he looked like. But I know, without question, that I love him with all of my heart. What he's done for my life, what he's taught me, what he's—I mean—revealed uh, about the whole nature of this world, of our Torah, of God—it's it's staggering. It's staggering. It's mind-blowing that he should do that for me. I told you I—I—I I, 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 I had visited Cambridge for the first time. And they, because it was my first visit, they brought out some of the things from the Cairo Geniza that they have at Cambridge. And so I'm going, they're taking me around, you know, I'm going around looking at these different things. And then, you know, he, he finally, he knew that I love the Rambam, so he did this on purpose. <laughs> so the last thing that he shows me, he gives, puts a piece of paper in my hand in a plastic sleeve. I, I, I look down and immediately I it's the Rambam's handwriting. Because we have his, his hand. I'm knew looking at him, I'm like, okay, hey, what is this? I'm figuring he's going to tell me maybe it's like notes from something, it's maybe a, a decree of some sort, a rabbinic agreement of some sort. I mean, we have those, plenty of those things from the Ramah. A letter. He says, that's a page from the Morin Ebuchim. And I started crying. I couldn't help it. I was embarrassed, you know, like I'm seeing, I'm holding his page. I didn't want to get it wet. I was crying because You could see the ink. You could see quill in ink. He wasn't typing this out on his Mac. I mean, this man is sitting with quill in ink, writing this down. And he writes at the beginning of the book, even if there's one person who will read this, it's worth it. I'm reading it almost 900 years later, and it has changed my life. And I see his handwriting, this paper he held in his hands. He put the quill and ink to write these words down for me to change my. I mean, of, of course I'm crying. How can I not cry? How could you not cry with that kind of care and, and attention and love for somebody in the future that might do this? You telling me he doesn't love me? Of course he does. So, to know him is to love him even if I've never shaken his hand. And therefore, since I can't shake God's hand, nor can I see him or experience him directly, what I do is experience his quote-unquote more nevuchi. And my goodness, I mean, it's prolific. The work that he's done, I mean, it's just prolific. Everywhere you look, literally. And the diversity, it's just absolutely shocking. I mean, he's not one of these artists that keeps putting in like, you know... A, Variations on the theme, you know. A couple eyes and nose and a mouth. How many configurations, you know. And we're looking around the room. It's just astonishing. And that's just humans. Forget about the fact that every single format of life possible is on the planet. Just this planet, you know. I mean, the planet makes the cosmos... Cheeky, like nothing. What are they, little light bulbs? Hydrogen bombs? Great. I mean, compared to the complexity that's going on in the show over here, I mean, literally, I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's a nothing. It's very cute. It's very cute, you know, the cosmos. I mean, they're breathtaking to us, you know, whatever Hubble telescope images you get to see. They are, they're absolutely beautiful, don't get me kidding, but this is much more beautiful. This room is much, much more beautiful than anything that the Hubble telescope could possibly bring back to you. Do you have any idea, do you have any idea how much more complexity is in this room than the entire rest of the galaxy? Just in the brains alone, the orders of magnitude of complexity in this room alone, exponential. Complex, it's just, it's literally staggering. You're going to tell me you're going to look at all of this and you're not going to immediately fall in love with the artist? You fall in love with the Beatles, you don't fall in love with the artist who made the Beatles. It's unbelievable. So that's all Rambam is saying. Goes to know him is to love him. And when he says, He'achi how do you love him? When you start to contemplate, think about his works, what he's done, Ubru'av and his creations, and iflayim. I mean, they're wondrous. Gidolim, they're huge. Just think about the exponential complexity of it all. Just the grandeur of it all. You see the wisdom that's behind it all, running it all. In It's just never ending. The prol- I mean, the prolific output is, is just staggering. You immediately fall in love. How could you not? But don't you realize that the minute you see everything that I'm describing, and I'm only describing a smidgen of whatever it is that's out there, it immediately, what you're feeling right now, if you're feeling anything from what it is that I'm saying, it's because you know yourself to be a part of it. You know that it matters to you. Because you are of it. You're not just a spectator. You're not just standing on the outside, looking at everything that I just described. You are what I just described. And to be able to see it all from the outside of of yourself, to be able to see it expressed all over you, around you, everywhere, it makes you feel more alive. You understand that what it is that gives you life is what you love. And when you see that that's what's expressed, of course you fall in love immediately. The only reason you don't fall in love immediately is because when you see the Morena Nebuchadnezzar on the shelf, it's just another book. Who wrote that? The Rambam? Oh, nice, nice. I want to smack somebody. I want to kick, beat them up. I want to beat them. But I restrain myself. Because it's not productive. Do you not see what it is that you're missing over here? Now, do you see where I just went with that? I stepped over from love to fear. Because I want to beat that person up not just because he doesn't see what it is that the Rambam has done. He doesn't respect the Rambam. The gravitas of the Rambam... I mean, a person should walk by the Mishneh Torah and bow every time they walk by the Mishneh Torah. Just because of what the Rambam did for us, by writing it. They should stop and pause at the Mishneh Torah. And just recognize for one, one moment what it is that the Rambam did for us in writing that. I don't even do that. But I should. Where do we do that? Where is it a mitzvah to do that? What is it? No. Close. Mezuzah. We pause. You don't need to kiss it. The Rambam never says kiss the mezuzah. Rambam says much more important than that because we kiss the mezuzah and it's just mindless. Nobody pays attention. The Ramam says, "When you pause, why? What do you do with the mezuzah? You pause and remember what's written in it. You know what's written in it? Ve'ahavta Adonai Elohecha bechol le'vavcha. Love him with all of your might, with all of your soul, with all of your heart. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Pause. Know that he is the source of all things. That there is only one source for all being." That there is hope, therefore, because there is only one source for all of it and therefore only one end for all of it. And there is love. That's what you're supposed to do when you pass by a mezuzah. Pause. When you go out into the world, if you pause at a mezuzah and you have that in your mind, you're unstoppable. But we don't do that. Instead, we mindlessly kiss it. Just because we think we're supposed to. Big difference. So, what I just did was cross over from love to fear. Because, and we're going to get back into it. I'm just saying it over here because I want you to see the integration. There should be a fear of disrespect when it comes to our relationship with God. We should fear walking past it and not paying attention. Simply. Because of the lack of respect that it shows. We'll get back to that in a moment. So, what the Rambam is saying is how do I come to love God? Look at what He's done. And when you look at what He's done, what happens? You get to know Him. So, many people think look at what He's done means study science, which it does, and it's essential. It's very important. As a matter of fact, the Rambam later on in this halakha, he says and therefore, since the way to love and fear God is to look at what it is that he's done, I'm going to spend some time talking to you about the basic scientific structures of our universe. And he does, for two pirakim. he goes, goes on, starts talking about the the, the the planets and the spheres and the stars, and talks about the angels and the all different levels of reality. It goes on and on and on and on about this. Because I want you. Why, he says, so it should open for your heart and a capacity to start to get to know and love. Okay, good. So study science. Very, very important. Absolutely essential. What about psychology? Should you be studying that? Yeah. Absolutely. Why? Because who made the human mind? Same artist. How about human output? Should you study that? creativity music art literature should you study that why not who made the mind that's making those things i mean it's very interesting to see what the human mind puts out god did make that didn't he so the cars that we design the buildings that we build i mean it's crazy you know we look at birds nests and we think my we look at a spider web, and we're like, oh, that's amazing. But you go into the city of London, and you're just like, yeah, it's so nice. These buildings are really nice. We made those. They're much better than spider webs. Mostly. I was just saying, my son, uh, was it you, Isaac, or was it Aaron? I remember. The other day, we, were to- we saw a f- uh, fly flying around. I said, just the aerodynamics of this thing are unbelievable. Could you imagine? We can't come close to making anything like that. Could you imagine any flying machine flying with the aerodynamics of a fly? Could you imagine? I mean, could you I mean we would literally, we would just totally knock any 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 other country out of the water if we had a flying machine that could do what a fly could do. It's unbelievable. Okay, so all of it. That's why when you study the Talmud, you will find that the hachamim are comfortable speaking about everything under the sun and over the sun. They talk about it all. They talk about it from a framework of Torah, from a framework of God creating it, of the systems that come with that. But there's nothing that they don't speak of, nothing that they don't study and understand because all of it is an expression of God. If I'm needy, and all I'm interested in is what it is that I can get out of it, well then, that's not love. And there are problems with that. And that's why, by the way, a very major reason why the hachamim said, don't look at certain things, don't study certain things, don't engage in certain things. Why? Because you're needy. That's why. I'll give you an example. The hachamim say, Don't have anything to do. Don't read. Don't speak about anything that has to do with foreign worship, with Abu Dazara, right? Why? Because we're very concerned that you're just going to like it too much, and then you'll end up, you know, you won't be able to discern what's good about it, or not that there's anything particularly good about it, right? But what's missing in it? What's empty in it? You won't see it. So don't read it because you won't be able to have the capacity to be able to accommodate it and absorb it appropriately. And it's such a real, there's, there's such a thing, I mean, there's a reason for that. We don't say just because you know how to think, you should think. On all things. Maybe you don't know how to think about this particular thing. Maybe you're just not set up to think about this particular thing. What is that, censorship? Perhaps. Why, you don't censor for children? You should. Depends. What's appropriate for them, cognitively, and so on and so forth. But I mean, we all do. And the only reason we do it is because we're concerned about their capacity to be able to digest and absorb the information that they're experiencing. They're just not ready to properly accommodate the information that they're experiencing. So how can you say, don't? Meanwhile, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin, of the high court, have to be absolute experts in all areas of foreign worship. So they have to study it. You know why they have to be experts? Because if somebody actually transgresses and worships what we call Abu Dazara, they have to be brought to court. And they're only culpable if they worship in the manner that that particular worship is done. And the only way for the Sanhedrin to know whether they were doing it appropriately or not, is to know about that Abu Dazara. So somebody had to let them read it. And there are examples of this throughout. And yes, there are things that human beings just simply are not equipped for, no matter how sophisticated and intelligent a human being might be. And that's why Torah comes and says, listen, this is not for you. I'm just telling you, it's not for you. I mean, I know you think that you can handle it all, but I'm suggesting that this is really not for you. You won't have any ability to be able to digest it. Appropriately. Good, okay. So to know him is to love him and I study the things that I can, and look at the things that I can in order to be able to recognize them. Now the Rambam says very clearly in number seven, it's a ratio. To the degree that one knows God is the degree that one loves God. To the degree that one doesn't is the degree that they cannot. You cannot love what you don't know. And if you think that you're loving something that you don't know, you're loving something else. Not it. So when you say, I love God, wonderful. I don't know what God you're talking about. Right? It may be some other God that you've created or constructed in your mind that you call Hashem, or whatever it is that you call it. And that's very nice. But if you don't know God, if you haven't studied, and you don't see what it is that He's putting out, you don't know the works that He has put out, then you can't love simple as that. And the Rambam says this in many ways, but he says this in number 7 very succinctly. And this is from Hilchot Teshubah. He says, look, The only way to love God is to know God, and to the degree that you know you love. Based on the knowledge is the love. I'll explain it further. If it's a little bit, it's a little bit. If you know a little, your love is a little. If you know a lot, your love is a lot. Or you have the capacity to love a lot. Right? But if you only know a little, you don't have the capacity to love a lot, because you're not loving anything that you know. You won't, I mean, there's nothing there. All you know is, all you can love is what it is that you know. لَفِيْخَ says, سَرِيْخَ أَدَمْ لِيَحَدْ atzmo. Therefore, a person has to, لِيَحَدْ means to get single-minded. In what? lehavin لَسْكِيلُ to understand and to comprehend Chokhmah, all the wisdoms that you can, to whatever degree that you can. all of these things that tell you about your Maker. Next words Kefi Kowah Shiyesh beadam lehavin ulhasig to the degree that each human being has to understand and to grasp. So, not everybody's equal. But to whatever degree you can, one must. And to that, through that, one comes to love. If they know who God is, that God's putting all of this out, right? If you don't see it as God putting all of this out, it's just a bunch of stuff, well then, okay. That's why we have to know what we're talking about when we say God. So I want to look at number eight with you quickly. Because here Arambam says very clearly, he says, look, he says, this is in the Moreh Buchim." He says, A person who thinks about God and talks about Him all the time without knowing Him. So a person can talk about Hashem, 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 Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Hashem, Hashem. They've never opened a science book. They have no idea what the nature of humanity is. They haven't studied anything about the world. They don't know, right? They don't know. They go after whatever it is that they imagine, some imaginary idea, or because of something that somebody told them. Hashem is this, Hashem is that, whatever it is. And even if they know basic things about Hashem, right? Hashem is one, okay? We teach our children that. Hashem is not physical. Good, we teach our children that, we try to teach our children that. Most human beings, most adults don't have the capacity to absorb that. Not that you imagine God sitting on a throne somewhere, but you imagine God being angry, don't you? Or happy, or judging all human things that are based in the physical mind. We borrow those terms as well. As much as we borrow the term as God sees, God lifts, God embraces god hears we borrow terms to say god loves god is angry god is happy was, there's no none of that it's borrowed right see that makes you very uncomfortable and you thought that you didn't think god was physical so anybody that has any of these ideas about god right it's okay to borrow the terms and know that you're borrowing the terms right the torah does it all the time and i saved you from egypt with an outstretched arm, powerful hand. God has no hand, He has no arm, and yet we speak of it. Good. Okay, so it helps us to kind of relate to it, but I don't assume that He actually has this. Yeah, I speak about it that way. So, so the Rambam is saying if a person talks about God without understanding these things, without really contemplating these things, just the opening of our Shir today of this lecture today. What we spoke about, primal existence, what it means to be primal, these basic ideas. If a person does not understand this stuff, is not really thinking about this stuff, and they say Hashem, Hashem, Hashem all the time, the Rambam says, Leda'ati, he's careful to say this, he goes, Harehu Leda'ati, he goes, look, as far as I'm concerned, my opinion, hi hi forget about the fact that the person is far away from God, Right, he's outside the courtyard, because he has this whole analogy, the Rambam, to, what it means to be close. And he uses his courtyard and kingdom and city and so on. Right? Forget about that he's far from the courtyard. <speaking in Hebrew> he's not even talking about God. <speaking in Hebrew> Nor is he thinking about God. He's just saying Hashem about something else, but he's not talking about God. Yudkevavkeh. <speaking in Hebrew> whatever it is that's in his imagination, and what it is that he says in his mouth, it has nothing to do with that existence that we were talking about. I mean, it's some idea that his imagination conjured up and called God. He says, He says, look, you want to come to be close to God? You first need to get to know Him you can't get close unless you know Him. So He says, when you start to grasp the idea of God, and His actions, what it is it that He's done, according to what intelligent thought requires, then you can work on connecting with Him. And you can move towards Getting close to Him. But unless you know Him, in whatever capacity you can, there is no Him to get close to. And then you can strengthen, broaden your connection and your ability to be able to involve yourself with Him. So this is very key. I mean, this is major. This mitzvah v'ahavah. I mean, it's, it's everything. So I brought you Eric from over here. The Art of Loving. An essential read, if you want to know about love and human capacity for love. He says, it's an illusion to believe that one can separate life in such a way that one is productive in the sphere of love and unproductive in all other spheres. You think, I'm a great lover, right? I love people, I love my kids, I love my, my, my wife, I love my... right. But you're lazy. No, then you don't. Or you're not particularly productive in any other area. No, then you don't. That's what he's saying. Productiveness does not permit of such a division of labor. The capacity to love demands a state of intensity, awakeness, enhanced vitality, which can only be the result of a productive and active orientation in many other spheres of life. If one is not productive in other spheres, one is not productive in love either. Very true. So it therefore requires action. It's not just a feeling. It requires effort, work, thought, involvement, action. And so I give an example here. Because there's a mitzvah not only to love God, there's a mitzvah to love every for every member of Israel, to love every member of Israel. Take a look at number 10. Mitzvah, kol adam le'ehovet, kol ve'chad MeIsrael ke'gufo. There is a mitzvah in every member of Israel to love every member of Israel like one's own body, like your own being, like your own self. Shenei it says, mocha, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Lefichach, he says, therefore, it doesn't stop there, you just have to love everybody. Therefore, what does it mean? It means, That means you have to praise the other people. Speak in praise of your fellow man and woman. You have to care about their property and their assets like your own. Action. You have to care about their, their honor like you would care about your own honor. Notice he goes immediately into action. It is mitzvah to love, therefore. You have to speak about them this way, act with them this way, engage with them this way. That's what it means to love. I'm going to let you read number 11 to 14 on your own. And I suggest you do, because it develops the entire idea. There is one thing that I will say, that there are levels of love. And there are levels of maturity in our love. We can love God like a parent. We can love God like a spouse. Very different. The mature way to love God is like a spouse. Like an adult lover. And how do I know that? Because we have Shira Shirim. That's how I know. The Rambam writes explicitly. Notice how it says that when, in number 11, he says how one is supposed to love God. To what degree is one supposed to love God? How intense is this love supposed to be? And he says it's not supposed to be as intense as the love that a child has for a parent. He says it's as, te- as intense as the love that a man has for a woman when he is lovesick. He can't think of anything else. He's infatuated. He can't think of anything else. He can't engage in anything. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He can't do anything except for thinking of this object of his love. And he says, and all of the book of Shira Shirim is an analogy to this. Which is why Rabbi Akiva says that the holiest book is Shira Shirim. Kol Kodesh, he says. All of the books are Kodesh. They're all holy. shira Shirim Kodesh kodeshim. It's holy of holies because it is an analogy in its entirety, a metaphor in its entirety, to the love between us and God. So, because we're at the end, and I knew that I was going to have this problem with regards to fear, I'm going to say this. Bear with me for, I know, they hate when I do this, but you can go. Bear with me for five to ten minutes. Promise, not more than that. You can get up, you can get up. You go, you go. You're okay? It's warm? It's warm. It's warm. You can't hear me very well. I'll try my best. When I recognize... So there are levels of fear. Okay? There are levels of fear. And what the Rambam says about fear is he he says, how do you fear? Because there's a mitzvah to fear. He says, the way that you fear is the same way. You start looking at all the things that God made, but start calculating them. And through those calculations... He says, start calculating them, computing them. And as you start to compute the myriad of output, the massive grandeur that God has put out, and you see yourself in that context, you realize something right away. You're pretty small. And that you stand in front of Tamim De'ot, he calls it. Tamim De'ot, I translate as complete awareness. You stand in the presence of whole, complete awareness. So everything that you're figuring out, you know, I'll give you an analogy for this. It's a very crude analogy, right? It's like my Rebbe, Chacham Ovedi Yosef I would learn something. I would figure something out or I would learn something. I would be, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I didn't know this. i open a book. He wrote it already, researched it already. It was all there already. It would happen many, many, many times. I would be like, oh my gosh, this is an epiphany. I've never saw this. everybody see this? Open up. It's all there. It's all written. He saw it all already. We used to say about him, Nchhol Razla Anisle in Aramaic, which means all secrets were not concealed from him. He knew it all. He saw it all. It was cra- that's why it was very difficult to argue with him. Because you couldn't bring him something that he hadn't seen. He already saw it all, and he already accommodated it all, and he put forth his opinion based on having seen all of it. And he also detailed all of it in perfect order and, and it was just it was mind boggling. And so you used to stand in front of hacham Khamavadya knowing this. Not just loving him, there was fear. Not fear that he was going to smack you over the head, fear of his being, of his knowledge, of the weight that he carried with him. So I had this experience, you know, I mean, I would sit with him on the Shabbat table. And he'd be in his suspenders, you know, his white dress shirt with the sleeves rolled up. He made pickles. He gave out, you know, he would give me pickles. He goes, I made this yesterday. Here, have some. We would talk about all kinds of things, We'd talk about music and whatever it was that he liked and stuff about when he was younger, and, you know. And then Shabbat would come to a close. And every Sh- Moshe Shabbat he gave a, cl- a shiur, a shiur to like thousands of people. And he would get ready. And I would, he'd be like, Yosef, that was a voice. You want to come with me to the shiur? I said, of course. me you know, so I would always come with him to the Shiur at Moshe Shabbat when I was there for Shabbat. And I would stand there, and all of a sudden, you know, the th- opens the- his driver would come in, he'd open the closet, and take out his robe. You know the robe, right? The gold the dove, his hat. And I would get a knot in my stomach because I realized that the man that I was sitting with and having pickles with and talking and talking about music was Chacham of And suddenly you were standing like before a king and you realize the weight of the person that's standing with you and you realize the 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 weight of his impact on a world just and then i would drive and you know you'd literally we would be in the car and kids little kids if we were at a red light kids would come to into the street to try and look through the front windshield to see him in the back seat because the window, the other windows were covered, they couldn't see him, literally, they would wait whatever, try and find him, it was insane that was okay, great that's just one creation of God he's just one expression talk about that type of kavod the entire earth is filled with his kavod there's fear There's fear in the greatness of the being which cannot even be expressed. And realizing that you stand in that space and that not just you stand in that space, he is aware of you. That whole complete consciousness is aware of you. It's not just he's watching you, right? He's just aware of you. He is watching. But the awareness itself is terribly, terribly, it brings tremendous reverence. And fear, like genuine fear. And the same kind of fear that, you know, you you never have a situation where you're in a room, you think you're alone, and suddenly you look up and somebody's there that you hadn't expected. You fright. You know what I'm talking about, right? And that's not even fearful. I mean, it might be grandma. You know, it might, might not be anybody that's threatening. But there's an immediate reeling back of another entity that exists that you had not accounted for. The fear of God is the reverence of the existence of God that is there outside of your head. You didn't imagine Him. You don't have control of Him. He's out there, outside, impinging upon you. The awareness is there, present, impinging upon you. And that is how we relegate Him out, because we pretend that it isn't there. And do you know how we do that? Cynicism. There's nothing like cynicism to throw God right out of the room. Nothing like it. You just laugh it away. And that's what people do to kavod. All you have to do to bring somebody, to, to minimize any great person, any powerful individual, satirize them. Laugh at them. Why do you think they freaked out when they did that to Mohammed? And the Jarlie Hebdo whole thing. Why do you think they freaked out? Big deal. It's a cartoon. What do you care? You know? No, it's a serious problem because once you start laughing around like that, it's all over. I mean I had I had students, I'll tell you, who they're young students, young students, right? They had a friend who was like this brilliant he's a brilliant kid, their friend, right? Very serious kid, very brilliant kid always caring about what's right, what's wrong, you know, all these things. So he's like God. And they got carried away with the joke a little bit. So any time that they wanted to reference God, they would reference this kid's name instead. And they did it in front of me. A few times. So the first time I figured, okay, they'll grow out of it, you know what I mean. But they weren't growing out of it. So I had to figure out how am I going to explain this to them without them actually laughing at me also for not being able to get the joke. Because there's always that problem, right? (laughs) So serious. I'll get a joke. So I had to sit with them. I said, listen, it's disgusting what you're doing. I was a Rebbe, so I could talk to them like that. I said, it's disgusting what you're doing. I want to explain to you why. I said, imagine if, if the Queen was in the room. And every time a dog walked into the room, in front of her, you said, our most gracious sovereign, the dog. Would you think that would be appropriate? I'm just asking what your opinion is. And they're like, no! I said, so then why is that okay? Why is it okay for you to do that? It's just a joke! Okay, that's also just a joke. But you would never do that. Because you would realize how horribly insulting it would be. Just to the majesty of the queen. And the majesty is not hers. The majesty is the country's. You don't do that. How do we minimize the majesty? We laugh at it. That's what you do. Cynicism. So the fear of God is genuine fear. It's not just reverence. It is reverence, but it's fear as well. It's fear of recognizing you do not control that consciousness. And that that existence is impinging on your life. And just because you think you have it in with Him doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. In the same way that when you love someone and you think you have it in with them, you're a heck of a lot more careful not to mess up if you genuinely care about that love, because you know you miss something small, you're going to hear about it. The more you love, the more it matters. The more you love, the more you have to fear missing it. You don't mi- you know you don't like to call and tell me where you are? What? I'm an adult? For- Do you love me? Do you care about how I feel? You don't call and tell me where it is that you are? What you're doing? What's happening? Are you going to be five minutes late for dinner? You get into massive fights over these things, right? What is it? Big deal. That's a big deal. And you should be very afraid. And that goes hand in hand with the love. People say that, Oh, if you love God, you know, He's, uh, he's always forgiving. No, no absolutely not. Just as much as you, anybody who loves you and loves them back, they're not so forgiving. Yet yeah, they will understand if you ask forgiveness genuinely and you s- sit and explain that you had lost your mind for a moment, fine, good. So then it's the love that is mechasel kol peshaim, as we say, that covers all iniquities. But don't for one minute think that the iniquity doesn't have to be recognized. Oh yes, absolutely it does. And so the highest form of a is what we call your memut. It's the fear and reverence of the grandeur that is God. The whole consciousness that is God that doesn't live in your head and doesn't live on your terms that made you whose existence is impinging upon you and is aware and knows and cares and things matter. And because things matter the highest level of this fear is the fear of messing up. Only because the messing up spits in the face of that honor. So I'm very concerned that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to me, listen, don't wear wool and linen. It's not good for you. And that I go ahead and do it. It's not just that I'm just doing something wrong. It's that I'm looking at God and saying, Puh, I don't really care what you said. that's a problem in any relationship. I can tell you, the thing that used to make me most upset as a teacher, as a parent, still does, as a principal, if I say something to you and it's as if I said nothing to you. I don't care if you didn't listen to me. I care that it meant nothing to you that I said it. That's what matters. When my child, I say to him, stop making that noise, and he keeps making the noise? The problem is not the noise. The problem is I just said something and you are showing me directly that it means absolutely nothing. Me, I'm your father. Nothing? Nothing. So that's an issue in terms of me being the father, right? Because like Margaret Thatcher said, if you have to tell someone that you're the leader, then you're not. But the reality is there. I said, don't wear wool and linen. It doesn't matter to you. I said, don't light fire on Shabbat. Like I said, nothing. Okay. If that's how you'd like it, then no problem. We can work that way. I can also pretend that you don't mean anything. Do you see? There's fear in the water. Yes, it's there. It's part of the relationship. Lovely. On that note, love Learn to, and remember that things matter. As Mark Helpern says on the last bit of the page, sometimes more than the human heart can bear. We'll see you next week.